Welcome to a public lecture podcast from the University of Bath. Professor Malcolm Johnson from the Department of Social and Policy Sciences at the University of Bath looks at the changing face of death in an ageing society. Thank you for that introduction and thank you for coming. One never knows on topics like this whether you'll be speaking to a small company of faithfuls. Um, I'm also going to stick to my script. Uh, You will discover that I'm going to race you through a lot of, I hope, related topics. And uh, some of them are rather beguiling. And if I adopt my usual lecturing mode, uh, I'll go off on tangents and you'll be here far too long. So if you find me reading from a script, it's not because after 40 years I can't do the other thing. It's for your sake. (laughs) You see uh, my topic. The desire to live a very long life and the search for immortality are two of the most enduring themes of human endeavor. The desire to live forever has had a fatal attraction and still does for many. But so far, none of the magic potions, um, herbal remedies, intercourse with young virgins, elixirs of life or plans to return from the afterlife have as yet, as far as I know, succeeded. But in the period of late modernity, there grew up a so far false belief that the massive strides in the expectation of life were leading us to a collective belief that death was in retreat and we could live indefinitely. In contemporary society, we see around us the closest Homo sapiens has ever got to great longevity. Over the past 150 years, the average expectation of life in developed societies has doubled. The fastest growing sector of our population is people over 80. In the last decade of the 20th century, the number of centenarians multiplied by 10. And in the summer of this year, 2009, we reached for the first time 10,000 people in Britain uh, who were 100 years or more. The demographic revolution to which we will return is undoubtedly a phenomenon to celebrate and rejoice in. But not all aspects of great age are joyous benefits nor is the approach to death likely to be as beguiling as some of the writers and leaders of fashion in earlier times had led their fellow citizens to believe. Our stories of aspiration to eternal happiness and the lived life of growing legions of older people will sometimes run together and sometimes reveal serious shortages in social provision. So this talk will take us on a journey through changing times, which deliver astounding and previously unthinkable benefits, and at the same time, an extraordinary unpreparedness for the consequences of societal oldness. Running alongside the reality of tangible life extension, we together will observe the stream of aspirations down the ages to live and live longer than all expectation, and maybe forever. For most of human history, life, for the great majority, was once aptly described as nasty, brutish, and short. Yet for the few with wealth and leisure who were able to avoid the hazards of insanitary conditions, manual labor, bad housing, poor and insufficient food... It was a further form of exhibiting power and wealth to seek ways to live longer than anyone else. Cheating death. Cheating death signified status. Um, The achievement of great age gave people transcendent qualities and possession of superior, if not supernatural, capabilities. So from the earliest times the search for immortality has had its active seekers, some of whom have gained 
enduring places in history. And you will certainly know who they are. The search for immortal life takes a variety of forms and motivations. It has thousands of years of history in most of the world's religions. Taoism, which was founded in China 500 years before the birth of Jesus Christ, um, was founded in China. Um, Like Christianity, it's based on virtuous living, the right treatment of others, healthy conduct, both physical and spiritual. And they state in, in one of their creedal statements the following, we reject hatred, intolerance, and unnecessary violence, and embrace harmony, love, and learning, as we are taught by nature. We place our trust and our lives in the Tao, that we may live in peace and balance with the universe, both in this mortal life and beyond. Until relatively recently, Taoism, Buddhism and Confucianism formed a troika of state-approved religions in China and in the Indochina states. So here's a long history in societies that have long and deep culture. The parallels with the Christian religious ethic and its promise of eternal life for the faithful is evident, and so too are the promises made to Muslims in the Quran and given exaggerated form by some radical fundamentalist groups in order to persuade suicide bombers to give up their mortal lives in armed combat in return for an eternal life of heavenly luxury and an endless supply of young virgins. But on the whole, these profound religious aspirations are more about spiritual fulfillment than indefinite flesh and blood living. Whilst the spirituality and virtue ethics of the great religions guide human behaviour as a basis for everyday living, with some form of immortality as a desired consequence of good living, the committed immortalists have different goals in mind. Their unequivocal aim is to live their mortal life for as long as possible, and best of all, forever. Here, the underlying motives are the demonstration of wealth and power into a command over life and death itself to yield an endless domination over enemies whilst enjoying optimal physical health, enabling a continued existence of pleasure, sexual gratification, and the respect of those who are mere mortals. Everlasting youth. You've all already achieved it, no doubt. The archetype of extraordinary longevity is, of course, Methuselah. Methuselah is mentioned in one passage in the Hebrew Bible, in Genesis chapter 5. And without the chronology, for those of you who know your Bible, in uh, 1 Chronicles. And it appears briefly in St. Luke's Gospel, chapter 3. His age at death is variably and I have to say unconvincingly reported, to have been between 653 and 969. Now, occasionally I feel 969. I don't think I'll last that long. History has recorded a long sequence of Methuselah aspirants, the great immortalizing images uh, represent the spectrum of motivations. So... Here's one. Um, This represents, of course, symbolic immortality, a beautiful, extravagant monument to lost but eternal love. That's one kind of immortality. During the 19th century, as developments in technology, transport and medicine created industrialised societies, which in turn generated great wealth and a sense of being able to conquer all, there grew up a succession of parallel health-promoting movements to enable longer life. 
in his now classic book, uh, The Journey of Life, A Cultural History of Aging, Thomas Cole documents the shifting cosmologies of aging and death. He highlights the tension between Christian Puritanism's inscrutable God, who demanded piety from all, but gave long life only to a few. Maybe not so attractive, he thought. With the post-enlightenment worldview that science and healthy living could extend life. And late in the century, the prolongevity hygiene movement promoted a bewildering array of eating regimes, exercises, moral abstention, and personal habits that would defer old age and death. Does that sound familiar? Most advocates of prolongevity considered aging as a chronic disease susceptible to treatment and to eradication. Riding on this tide of aspirational ideas, markets mushroomed for quackery and bogus rejuvenation methods. As Cole graphically puts it, and I quote from his book, enterprising quacks sold a fantastic array of tonics, elixirs, advice, and assorted paraphernalia, luring their prey with the promise of renewed youth. Sounds like television advertisements, doesn't it? In the 21st century, the appetite for living usefully or longer continues unabated. Magical potions of all kinds are much in evidence, not least in the heavy promotion of anti-aging creams and the growth of cosmetic surgery. But it's also fed by those who promote high-tech scientific solutions to the immortality question. One of these is cryonics. The Cryonics Society of America defines cryonics, as you can see here, um, as a field of scientific research which seeks to use technological means, means of cooling human tissue and organs uh, to the point where physical decay stops. And then, um, when the time is right, to regenerate them into normal, healthy functioning. That's a quote. I didn't say that. It was given academic credence by the mathematician and physicist uh, Robert Ettinger in his book, The Prospect of Mortality, Immortality, in 1964. <clears throat> now, today, there are commercial companies and independent trusts in many countries which offer cryonic services, and they're not difficult to find on the Internet. And from within the current research community in the UK, we have the Cambridge PhD and former, former postdoctoral researcher at Cambridge University, the estimable Dr. Aubrey de Grey, who runs something called the Methuselah Foundation, hence the beard, uh, which is rather splendid and very long and much twiddled. Uh, He runs it with substantial support, mainly from wealthy Americans. Um, What does he say? Um, He says, aging is a physical phenomenon happening in our bodies. So at some point in the future, uh, we're going to be able to address aging just as we've addressed other diseases. And he claims that we're close to that point because of something he calls the strategies for engineered negligible senescence. I can hardly say it. It's a tongue twister. But it's a lovely string of words, and I hope you'll use it a lot. Um, And this project is to prevent and cure aging. He says, of course, people will still die from uh, hazardous accidents and uh, unexpected diseases. But then he goes on to say, um, and this is his punchline, I think the first person to live to be 1,000 might be 60 already. Is it one of us? (laughs) Um, Now, given the developments in my own lifetime, when 
um, I would often sneeze at these kinds of prognostications. I no longer feel able to say, this is rubbish. Who knows? Who knows? Uh, Nanotechnology, uh, the unfolding of deep scientific uh, conundra from the past, may well mean these things. I don't know. But I know Aubrey de Grey. I've spoken on a number of platforms with him. He's an engaging man, and uh, the press and the media love him because he represents immortalization, the prospect of something in the future. Now, the star immortalist of our day is Silvio Berlusconi. He openly seeks the complete works, immortality, youthful vigor, and looks, hence his, uh, uh, his cosmetic surgery, uh, his wonderful sepulchre that you can read about there, and his doctor, who says that on the elixir which he prepares for him, the Italian premier is virtually immortal already. Alleluia. Uh, this is my elixir. Um, this is the one I believe in. When this research came out, I thought, I'm going to stick with this one. Um, so I do. Um, but enough of this intoxicating brew of high-flown ideas. Um, aren't we all living long enough already? Uh, and isn't it taboo to talk about death in times when the average expectation of life was much shorter than it is now, um, deaths occurred in all communities to people of all ages. Up to the end of the Victoria era, many babies died at birth or soon after. Mothers died in childbirth. Children and adults died of infectious diseases. Men died at work in hazardous occupations. Few from the working classes, then over 80% of the population, reached the age of 65. And if they did, there were no pensions for them then. Death was almost a commonplace. It had to be talked about. By mid-20th century, in the emerging prosperity after the Second World War, the demography of death had already changed radically. Infant mortality rates had fallen dramatically. Infectious diseases were largely under control. Life was becoming less hard and less tenuous. The slogan of the day, some of you here will remember, was a baby or a baby Austin. With the National Health Service firmly in place, much responsibility and power was given to the medical profession. By this time also, the funeral trade had become the established agency for dealing with death and funerals. And the churches were the expected partners in the funeral and many burials, though now fewer burials and most of us passing through cremation. The French historian philosopher Philippe Ariès, in his monumental volume, The Hour of Our Death, which he published in 1981, Observe these changes. He writes of the changing character of death as it moved from, as he saw it, the immediacy of tragic accident or fatal disease to the drawn-out death of chronic illness. This shift to the drawn-out death he labelled dirty death. And he says, when death became dirty, it became medicalized. And I quote here from his book, when the last of the traditional defenses against death and sex gave way to the medical profession, gave way, the medical profession could have taken over the role of the community. And it tried to do so in the case of death by isolating it in the scientific laboratory and in the hospital from which the emotions would be banished. Under these conditions, it was better, he said, to communicate silently in the complicity of a mutual lie. 
Arya's detailed and robust critique of modern Western European death, taken over by the troika of medicine, the clergy, and the funeral director, was labelled the death taboo thesis. Um, My colleague who sat at the back, uh, Professor Tony Walter, provided the most thorough reappraisal of Arias' thesis in a 1991 article in the journal Sociology. Um, Tony challenged the then conventional wisdom that death is the taboo of the 20th century. And his article asked, is death taboo? If so, in what sense? And if it's not taboo, then why the frequent announcements that it is? The strengths and weaknesses of the taboo thesis are reviewed in his article. Uh, Six possible modifications and critiques are offered. One, that there was a taboo, but it's now disintegrating. A second, that death is hidden rather than forbidden. A third, that the taboo is limited largely to the influential occupational groups of the media and to medicine, who make it quiet. And fourth, that the loss of coherent language for discussing death leads to conversational unease. Fifthly, that all societies must both accept and deny death. So pundits are able to pick whatever examples fit their thesis. And lastly, that it is the modern individual, not modern society, that denies death. That society will speak about death, but we don't. Now, this analysis, I think, uh, began to unwrap for us uh, what this death taboo that we spoke of was about. And his analysis remains sound, but after nearly 20 years, the picture has modified again. Whilst death is still denied by individuals who expect uh, even the oldest old to have been saved when it's their parent by the doctor um, from be- uh, by better medical attention. And there is a greater openness in the public media and the arts. So we have a mixture of curious expectations. Nonetheless, 60% of deaths still take place in hospitals under medical care. And 24% take place in various places that we choose to call institutions. And in all of those places, individuals are routinely removed from the mortuary or the bedroom by an undertaker. So we still have the deaths that doctors arrange for us. But do we still, do we have the funerals we want? Have funerals changed? Or do we get what the funeral director chooses to offer us? Now this is a fascinating topic in its own right, and with more time, I'd be glad to report more of what is known in this field. Um, And if you don't know, you might be interested to know that the University of Bath offers the only uh, uh, degree in funeral services. So uh, there could well be a funeral director or two lurking in this audience. Um, But let me show you, instead of a long disquisition, a set of images which depict the conventional patterns. Because we talk and plan little about death, most funerals in Britain are what's called a distress purchase, made with the first funeral director, approached either from recommendation or from the yellow pages. We know this from research, by the way. And it's usually agreed within three days of the death. Here we see a picture of the traditional oak veneer, cheap chipboard um, made to the standards of the European Union, so it's combustible with low emissions. And it's what most older people are buried or cremated in. 
And here, if you want to move up market, is the American casket, which may come with a picture of the Last Supper in the lid, if you want one. It may be lead-lined to aid immortality, and it costs a lot. And here's a flat-pack coffin that you can send for on the internet and can be delivered by your postman, a simple pine box for self-assembly. It's cheap, but it's unlikely to be on your undertaker's list because it's cheap. Uh, and it's offered use in DIY funerals. Um, there are some of them. And there are some people who buy them and use them as drinks cabinets. So you may want to take that option. Here is an eco-coffin that may well be used in woodland burial. Relatively inexpensive. And uh, for those people who do it, often uh, used for personal decoration. Here's a Somerset willow coffin. Uh, these are gaining popularity. These are more expensive than the ones that come from China. So if you ever need to buy one and you want the real thing, you'll have to pay more. You can see this one's been uh, decorated with flowers. Here's a gold-painted eco-pod. And here is a personalised cardboard coffin um, with pictures of the family on it. You can see that it's targeted at younger people. And here, uh, just to show you that the variety is wide, is a Ghana-style airplane coffin. Uh, in Ghana... Um, people are often buried in coffins made to represent their occupations. They're very exotic and they're carried through the street or um, drawn on the backs of lorries and the funeral procession goes alongside. They're very public and very exuberant. This picture, however, is taken from the catalogue of the funeral supplies and alternative funeral directors Heaven on Earth in Bristol which, interestingly, is very close to the Bristol Royal Infirmary, if you want to know where to go. And then uh, there are developments in burial, and many people know about woodland burial grounds, but maybe have never seen one. This is just an advertising image from the one that's closest to us. <clears throat> um, as you can see, there are new styles and patterns, and funeral directors can and will supply them. But few have them as part of their standard offering because they're more difficult to source and they're less profitable. Similarly, they will arrange funerals at woodland burial grounds, provide a coach and horses. You can see one here, hearse, and um, a motorcycle hearse. Here's the Reverend Paul Sinclair with his motorcycle hearse, which uh, I think he was the first to introduce into, into Britain. Uh, they'll provide you with burial at sea um, and a trained civil celebrant if you don't want the duty clergy person at the crematorium, if you ask for it and at a price. But for all those services, um, they would have to be bought in from specialist suppliers. So I suppose I'm suggesting to you that there is a lot of innovation out there, but funeral directors on the whole, and there are some extremely interesting exceptions, um, don't press them very hard. So we may be in changing times, but we may not... Now, whilst most of the public expressions of the presence of death in a household coming up to the Second World War, and you'll remember them many here, uh, curtain closing of all the houses in the street, body viewing, um, mourning dress, mourning clothing and jewellery, coffin carrying through the streets, and many other things, these are now forgotten. Some new practices have emerged. Most prominent amongst these are the laying of flowers at the place of death. This practice has become widespread uh, after the death of Princess Diana. And you've seen this and many other pictures uh, illustrating what began a new practice. 
Um, and her funeral service uh, encouraged lots of people to introduce more personal and secular elements, uh, songs, popular music, and personal tributes from family and friends into funeral services and celebrations. And the context of this talk, it's interesting to note that these new practices are largely reserved for the recognition of deaths of young people. Uh, the recent death of Jade Goody, much anticipated and reported in the popular press, resulted in a Diana-like funeral and abundant laying of flowers. Public re reactions to the premature death of a child, especially if the circumstances are mysterious or horrifying, are now inflated festivals of emotion and street symbolism. But no such outpouring of grief by strangers accompanied the deaths of, let's say, Dame Elizabeth Schwarzkopf, celebrated soprano, Beryl Cook, artist, Humphrey Littleton, jazz trumpeter and broadcaster who made us laugh, Clement Freud, chef, journalist, broadcaster, politician. Nothing like that for them. So what has changed and what remains the same? And more particularly, what kind of death do we have in old age? The early years of the 21st century play host not only to the demographically oldest societies in human history, but also to an unprecedented <laughs> conjunction of old age and death. In Western society today, 80% of all deaths are people over 65 and predominantly of men and women who are much older. The democratization of very old age has seen the average age of death move rapidly along the life path, extending the standard working class period of lived retirement from around uh, three years to 13 Amongst the expanding battalions of survivors who are in their 10th decade, men lose out to the extent that there are six women for every man. As a consequence, when we look for the oldest old, where one in three will find themselves in a residential or nursing home, the average age there is 90. And centenarians so rare in the recent past are almost commonplace. Residents of such establishments are overwhelmingly female. So death has moved away from the newly born, from mothers in childbirth, children with infectious illnesses, men involved in hazardous work, adults with life-threatening illnesses, into the province of old age. It has also become a correlate of late-life widowhood. This might be the major loss, widowhood. <clears throat> but entry into the fourth age of dependency may also mean a marked deterioration of physical health, probably resulting in loss of mobility. Other common losses include loss of visual acuity. There are a million people in Britain who are blind. 95% of them have late-onset blindness. They are old. Other common causes include loss of hearing and for around half of the resident population of a care home, troubling memory loss or dementia. The new patterns of collective grief show great empathy for the premature ending of the life of a child or adult in middle life. But the taken-for-granted script for anyone over 75 and two-thirds of all deaths in our society, are people of 75 plus. Uh, these phrases are summed up as following. Uh, when the death of a, an old person, and 75 isn't that old anymore, um, you hear these things. She or he had a good innings. Uh, he's best out of it. It must be a relief. Our time comes to us all. 
And you can think of some more, I'm sure. These acceptable platitudes rarely carry the sense of loss which surviving relatives might be experiencing or the psychologically and financially gloomy future which many who are widowed will face. Sociologically, we're observing a cultural lag as the mores of the times slowly develop an appreciation of the real and experienced deprivation that many endure, but which is yet to become part of the body of knowledge. There are other factors in the current equation. Widowhood often impoverishes women who have outlived their human and financial resources. Yet their deaths will relieve family carers in their 60s or their responsibilities and release the assets tied up in a small house. For a very long time, (coughs) in public presentations in this topic, I've used the phrase, where there's a will, there are families. Here in the interstices of generational relationships, both macro and micro, there are unspoken fragments of social fabric which currently favour the middle-aged. Those in the last stages of their old age are seen as the beneficiaries of the demographic revolution. Indeed, many are mindful of the life bonus they have unexpectedly gained and take great pleasure in great-grandchildren, subsidised travel, the support of churches and the experience of life at a slower pace. Others live in constant pain, have multiple pathologies, which are treated by regular handfuls of polypharmacy. They experience the indignity of dependency, the uncertainties of memory loss and dementia, and the anxiety of life without future. This new group of aged life beneficiaries represent a once-for-all succession of cohorts. Their lives began, many of them, in the poverty and terror of the First World War, and their early adulthood was lived throughout the Great Depression and into the Second World War. Most will have left school at 14 and experienced physical hardship, both in their work and in their home lives. Born between 1900 and 1935, this group are markedly distinct from the baby boomers born between 1946 and 1964, whose lives have been characterised as economically and socially privileged. Moreover, the differences in their life chances, relative poverty of opportunity and money, and the nature of the society they live in, has... I wish to assert, left them with considerably different spiritual concerns and moral frameworks. I label this uh, section, Biography, the Key Source of Spirituality. As human beings are the accumulation, we are the accumulation of our life experience, what we've lived, observed, thought, felt and done are the essence of our personhood. Our journey along the life path is unique, even if it has been shared with others who've lived in the same places, lived in the same houses, been to the same schools, experienced the same world and local events, gone through the same stages from childhood to now. Loved some people and disliked and been hurt by others been sometimes lucky and also suffered hurtful losses. The distinctive nature of our journey is our personal biography. The story of our lives is a detailed narrative that we have constructed from millions of reflections to form an account of who we are. As we've gone through life, we've been mentally writing this story, adding to it new features and editing out others. Curiously, we very rarely get the opportunity to tell the whole life story. Being listened to without constant interruption by a non-judgmental listener is a rare and special opportunity. Having your life recollections heard with engaged interest and your interpretations of what they mean to you taken seriously is a particular privilege. 
as a researcher, I have innumerable times listened to older persons present their life story, mindful of the trust invested in me and surprised at the extent of intimate revelation. Um, <clears throat> often times it emerges that the account of extramarital relations, babies aborted or given up for adoption whilst husbands fought in a war, revelations by women of uh, sexual and physical abuse and dishonest practices have been told to me by these people for the first time. They are told to what I describe to students as safe, interested stranger. That's what a researcher represents. All too often it becomes apparent that these are stories of deep guilt, protected over decades and made wholly unavailable even to the closest kin. The converse of the rationing of significant biographical information is the frequent unwillingness of children to listen to the wishes of their elderly parents. Here's a bit of dialogue. Older parent, I want to talk to you about my funeral. Adult child, no, you don't want to talk about that. You'll live for years, yes? Children are frequently unable or unwilling to talk with their parents about issues of mortality and spiritual concern. So where do older people um, at the far end of life turn for a listener? Not for the first time, the insight of the great American writer Maya Angelou captures the dilemma. And there she is. She writes, this is one stanza in a poem that she wrote uh, last year for her 80th birthday. When you see me sitting quietly like a sack left on a shelf, don't think I need your chattering. I'm listening to myself. That's lovely. This stanza uh, highlights the continuing and ever-interesting inner reflection that all human beings have as a gift. Life review, reminiscence, or simply recalling a fragment from the past, prompted by a random cue, is the daily universal experience. But the nature of the experience is undoubtedly age-related. The older you are, the more you have to remember. The older you are, the closer you are to the end of your life. The less opportunity to fulfill your dreams and deal with the failings, fissures, and hurts of the past. At the same time, the long-lived are more alone. Aloneness in itself is not necessarily undesirable. Indeed, our colleague here, Professor Alan Keller here, has recently argued that dying alone is desirable for some. But it does present unaccustomed and unoccupied space for biographical reflection. This will provide pleasurable recall of the good times in every life. And Maya Angelou's don't think I need your chattering, I'm listening to myself, seems to imply a satisfying inner life. It may also be the sponsor of depression, endemic amongst the very old for clearly observable reasons of distress and profound pain. So let me speak about something I call biographical pain. Um, biographical pain is a notion, a concept, that has come out of my research on studying life backwards. Those of you who know Kierkegaard believe that you could best understand life by studying it backwards. And I've been doing that for a long time by doing biographical studies of ageing. Out of that work, I've heard many accounts. And out of those accounts, I've observed people whose lives coming to an end are full of fulfilment. And I don't want to suggest that all old age is full of depression. 
But I do want to draw attention to something which I believe is uh, misunderstood and very widely available. So I talk about biographical pain as the irremediable anguish which results from profoundly painful recollection of experienced wrongs which can now never be righted. When finitude, the sense of ending or impairment, terminates the possibility of cherished self-promises to redress deeply regretted actions. Your own actions and the actions of other people that have affected you. The presence of serious biographical pain is characterized by the surfacing of deeply buried fractures in the life biographies of individuals who always intended to put things right, but have now run out of capability to bring about that resolution. They will no longer be able to apologize, seek or give forgiveness, deliver restitution, deliver a good to balance out the bad for an evil act. The opportunity to redress wrongs has passed by and the individual is left with an overwhelming sense of guilt. And it is in the very slowness of late life which provides the opportunity for such life reviews to surface. Now, despite my careful uh, counting of the number of words... um, I've left myself too little time to finish all of my argument. And I think it's important that you should have the opportunity to say what you think and uh, challenge or ask questions. So let me try and condense some of what follows. I wanted to say a little bit about my interest in uh, end-of-life care in care homes. Uh, I've done a lot of research on care homes and uh, a lot of my research has been unfashionable. Uh, When I was a young man, people say, why are you interested in all those old people? And now they say, why are you interested in death? Um, And the reasons for both are because they're important. Um, And everybody who goes into a care home, almost everybody, will die there. Um, And that's one-fifth of all deaths. So it's an important place to study what happens at the end of life. Um, My colleagues and I have just completed a major study, uh, and I've just put up here the details of it. Um, What I want to say about this research is that out of the data um, came the most unexpected conclusion that the best place for a very old person to die is in a care home. Why is that? Because death in hospitals is often uh, undignified, hurried, it lacks privacy, it's very public, Uh, people bustle about, it's not a place to say profound last things. Dying at home, which means for many people living alone um, with help of others, because most people uh, over 75 live alone. They may be able to call on family members, but they won't live around the corner anymore, uh, and they may get help from public services. But if they get more than two hours a day, five days a week, They'll be very, very lucky indeed. Those are the averages that can be expected. So they're going to live 22 hours a day and all the weekends alone. If you are at the far end of life with disabilities, with confusion, with incontinence and the things which are characteristic of the fourth age, that's not wonderful. But in a care home, you get privacy, Good food, 24-hour care, seven days a week, and people that know you and care about you. And staff in care homes say to me, we care about them. We love them. I was, after all those years, 
surprised how often I hear those things. So don't believe what you read in the Daily Mail about care homes. Of course there are some bad ones. But what consistently from our study, and it was a national study, shows that um, the care at the end of life uh, for older people is second to none. Um, And it's extraordinary that these additional services that are offered to relatives of the opportunity to stay overnight, have meals, have drinks, have private space, get advice about funerals, it's all free. No extra charges. Something very special about that. So whilst we vaunt the hospice movement, uh, and it has given us some very special things, the hospice movement focuses on children and adults with cancers. It's beginning to stretch out of that. Almost no very old people ever get to a hospice. So we have this curious ageism, both in our hospitals and in hospices, but also in care at home. So curiously, care homes come out top of the list. So I would say, let's recognize that, let's make more of it, let's value it, and let's take some of those experiences um, into other places so that we can improve the quality of dying in our society. So, intimations of immortality? Not yet. We live longer, and for most of that time, we are generally healthy and able to live independent lives. But the last lap is fearfully difficult for many. When our nation is able to provide as well for our dying as it does for our living, we will have begun to create an all-age society. People in the fourth age need and deserve support and care for their increasingly frail bodies, and not least, humane nurture for their spirit. Thank you.